After the initial shock of seeing flames erupt from the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, apart from saving the structure, initial thoughts turned to the priceless artworks and relics. We'll discuss what was lost and what was spared, and if more could have been done, with Professor Mark Ledbury of the Power Institute at the University of Sydney. The Indigenous Art Fair in Cannes celebrates 10 years this year. Vanessa Gillen joins us to discuss what's coming up and the growing trend of artist-entrepreneurs. What does it take, and is it for everyone? One prolific artist gives us an insight into the hard work and rewards of turning creative talent into a viable business. I'm Tim Stackpool, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again, and after banging on about how the podcast prize wheel remained unsponsored, who would have guessed... The prize wheel is now emblazoned in the centre with a huge sticker proclaiming Pixel Perfect Pro Lab has claimed the mantle of sponsor. Now, for those who are unaware, we spin the podcast prize wheel each episode to determine the order in which our guests are interviewed. Pixel Perfect Pro Lab are phenomenal in printing images for professional photographers, but also in undertaking photographic prints of artworks with a special emphasis and expertise in faithful colour rendering and reproduction. So, from photo printing to fine art printing to art reproduction, head to their website at www.pixelperfect.com.au to learn how they guarantee accuracy, consistency and quality. That's pixelperfect.com.au. I'm very excited, but let me now write up the options on the prize wheel. Professor Mark Ledbury regarding the Notre Dame fire, Vanessa Gillen from the Indigenous Art Fair in Cairns, and John Klein talking about artist entrepreneurship. Okay, it's dreadful handwriting, but nonetheless, here's our first spin. And first we get to speak about the Notre Dame fire. And as I mentioned in the intro, there was plenty of heartbreak at the sight of perhaps the most famous cathedral in the world being consumed by flames. Worse still were thoughts of the priceless artwork contained within the cathedral, which raises, amongst other things, the discussion of how priceless works of art should be exhibited and kept safe. Professor Mark Ledbury at the University of Sydney is a specialist in 18th and 19th century European art. Being the director of the Power Institute, he enjoys the title of Power Professor of Art History and Visual Culture at the University of Sydney. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be asked, and I am very interested to talk about Notre Dame. Now, if it at all could be possible for the news out of Paris to get better, apparently quite a lot of the artwork from the cathedral was saved, and perhaps only maybe up to 10% was lost beyond restoration. It's, It's remarkable, in fact, and the news that I heard via somebody who had been into the scene was that the three the three great rose windows are all substantially intact, and um, one one may need to have its glass taken out as a precautionary measure as they rebuild. But that's you know they, those rose windows are, are, are some of the glories of Notre Dame, and they sort of you know would be extremely difficult to replace. So that is just fantastic news, and um, and of course the the Virgin of the, the, the great late Gothic uh, stone statue, which is sort of carved out um, uh, and in situ also survived, which is wonderful. It's a lovely late Gothic uh, statue, which everyone will probably know, sort of rather iconic of the Virgin and Child. The child obviously um, has a Salvatore Mundi with the, holding the orb of the world. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful and elegant piece, and it, it apparently has survived. And purely by luck, I suppose, that so many of the works and relics had already been removed previously because of existing yeah. restoration work? Exactly. I mean, because they were, 
because of all the roof reservations. I mean, you know, we can't be entirely, um, you know, joyful about a terrible fire that ripped. I mean, you know, the very sort of forest vaulting, those massive wooden structures of the roof that were, met, I mean, there were 13th century beams in it. Not all of them were original, but, uh, you know, that has been destroyed and we can't, uh, you know, we all saw the, the heap of charred remains where the where the altar where the temporary altar was and um that 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 you know that's a very chilling sight yes unfortunately but the other thing we must remember is that the modern notre dame if it can be called that is a result of previous destruction and restoration over the centuries indeed and a a demolished church was at its heart i mean there was a church on the site before the cathedral but also i think we do well to to remember that substantially the notre dame that we see now is a product of the extraordinary and sometimes criticized, but rather remarkable renovation work that was done in the 19th century by Viollet-le-Duc and Lassus. And, you know, that was done between sort of the 1840s and the 1860s. You know, the restoration of those of those fantastic portals on the West Front. You know, most of that statuary was entirely destroyed, either by the brutal need for the king's baldachin to be brought in in the 1770s or by the revolution. And so so much of what we understand of Notre Dame is, in fact, you know, you could argue that the greatest restorer of Notre Dame was Victor Hugo. Because he, his imaginative reconstruction or of the importance and the pertinence of the building as a symbol of Paris and of spiritual strength and of sanctuary, that really set an imaginative campaign going, which led the 19th century to sort of, you know, the 19th century restorers to be so passionate. And in a way, that has survived. I mean, in, many people will know Notre Dame, almost as a as an imaginative structure. You you can ask many people. Oh, you know Notre Dame? Yes, I've been to Paris many times. And I've, but then you say, have you ever been inside? Can you remember what's inside? A lot of the people will, will not be able to give you a precise rendering of what's inside because Notre Dame for them is a kind of symbol before it's an actual structure. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it isn't a, an absolute marvel of a structure. And thank goodness for the great stone and, and lead and glass that has survived it all, and it's marvellous. But I do think that we have to remember that cathedrals are constantly worked on and constantly under attack from flood or incident or fire even, and, and that it really Notre Dame will be rebuilt in, in our 21st century way, hopefully with the same kind of a, an, an even greater attention to detail than the 19th century restoration. Um, and of course, it will provoke many issues which will be familiar to museum and heritage people all over. What do you restore? Where do you restore back to? What is, what is the Notre Dame we are trying to restore? That, these, are, these are key questions. Art surrounds us everywhere, Professor, but I'm wondering yeah. if after this you think there'll be a rethinking of where the appropriate place is to exhibit art and whether a centuries-old cathedral, for example, with its vulnerability, should be considered as a place to house any kind of priceless and irreplaceable work. Well, you know... Uh... I really, really believe that we should understand many of these artworks as part of their liturgical and multimedia environment. And it would be a dreadful thing if we sort of gutted out of some sort of health and safety reason the uh, the sort of spirit of cathedrals. Because many of those, you know, the beautiful artworks in wood and stone and, and the, were created for liturgical reasons. They take part in the services to take them out of the, the, the great building containers would be would would I think be, be terrible, even if we have to live with this, the risk of vulnerability, which is of course everywhere. And in a way, 
you know, this fire was terrible, and, and I'm sure there are people asking questions about the safety of the work site, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, we forget in a way that destruction is everyday part of our understanding of monuments, and that in the past few years, we've lost fantastic, equally ancient equally significant monuments in Aleppo, in Syria, we've lost, you know, and that in the Parisian past, they've lost an entire palace. The Tuileries Palace no longer exists, a victim of the, the great upheavals of the 1870s. The Hôtel de Ville, next, just, just near the cathedral, is in a complete reconstruction of uh, the medieval Hôtel de Ville, which was entirely destroyed, also in insurrection. And I think that, in a sense, artworks bear witness to human struggle, to human bloodiness, to human warfare, but also to the accidents and the inevitabilities of contingency in life. And I don't think we should try to spare art from all contingency. I really don't. Sure, but even given all of that, what do you think would be the greatest loss suffered by this fire? I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a historian mostly of painting and some great 17th century paintings um, which were given by guilds to the, the church in the 17th century as a result of a kind of competition uh, and a sort of a, which the presentation on May Day every year. They are known as the Maze of Notre Dame and they, they represent the Acts of the Apostles, some of them, and there were 12 in the church and I suspect that unfortunately if the fire didn't get them, the water that was sprayed all over the, um, you know, to douse the fire would have done some bad. So I don't think, with, while I've been mostly very optimistic, I, uh, there are things that I do regret, some really genuine and important parts of the history of Notre Dame as a working church that, um, that will have been lost. So coming back, looking at it from a modern perspective, though, and I'm not suggesting you're any type of building safety specialist, but are you just as surprised as many of us that there weren't better fire mitigation processes <laughs> in place? Look, I, I, to be really honest, I couldn't comment with any any kind of, uh, uh, you know, authority on, uh, you know, it's easy to say after the fact, well, you should have done this, you should have done I suspect that things were in place, but, but you know, accidents are, you know, you're never having them till you're having them, really, as uh, I think, you know, to quote Winnie the Pooh or whatever. And, um, and you don't really know um, uh, how to prevent every sort of accident. But of course, people will be looking into this. I mean, what I would say is that France is beautifully equipped because it has a national system of training, five-year training schemes of conservators. You know, they all go to the Institut National du Patrimoine and they train up for many years. They have a competitive entrance system. So there will be artisans and restorers and people skilled in the kind of techniques that are able to really apply themselves to a fantastic sort of mitigation of the damage. Sure, and given that, I guess there's no better place than Paris for such a disaster to occur, if I can put it crudely. In some ways, yes. The French have not neglected the, the importance of artisanship, and they have a very good and systematic approach to conservation and heritage. Now, different authorities may be slightly better or worse at all of this, but I, I have great faith in in the in the ability to produce, you know, Bielet Le Duc, however criticised he was, was a sort of a genius of, in some ways, a historically informed, practical, thoughtful architectural restorer. And I bet you there are those in in, in the 21st century who are his equivalents. Um, they may be, uh, you know, they may be currently thinking about how they're going to help. And do you have equal faith in President Macron's promise to rebuild the cathedral within five years? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't think, you know, we know how long projects take and we know that the first rule is those projects are unlikely to only last the short space of time. And I think Macron's five-year promise is 
almost um, you know it's wishful thinking. It's but let but in fifteen years I do suspect that the cathedral will regain an enormous amount of its of its of its luster. Professor, thanks so much for your time on the podcast. Not at all. Great speaking with you. That's Professor Mark Ledbury of the University of Sydney giving us perhaps perhaps a more optimistic take on the fire at Notre Dame. And if you ever get the chance to see the professor give a public presentation on his specialties, I thoroughly recommend you take the opportunity. So, now back with the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab prize wheel. Check out the photographic reproduction services offered by Pixel Perfect at www.pixelperfect.com.au. Two interviews to do the Indigenous Art Fair and Art and Entrepreneurship. Let's give it a spin. And we're off to Cairns, the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, referred to locally as CAIAF. It celebrates 10 years this year, and Vanessa Gillen is the general manager of the fair. Thanks for joining us, Vanessa. No problems. Nice to be here. Now, these three days of the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, they are huge. In fact, you have a bit of news regarding the three days, but first of all, tell us what we can expect. Oh, look, it's, um, well, this year is our 10th anniversary, which is uh, such an amazing milestone for the event which began in, in from government in 2009 as a very sort of small thing and is now features about three 400 dancers, performers and artists every year and hosts about 50,000 people through the event um, over a period of about three or four days. So this year we've just decided that we are going to officially say that the event is a five-day event, which it really normally is, but the art fair itself and the art market opened over three days, um, but prior to that, we built a sort of a plethora of lots of information and exhibitions and all sorts of other events surrounding the original art fair. Um, so, for example, this year in 2019, we have a an art symposium, which is going to be a fascinating day looking at artists and art and the culture of final Queensland and Queensland artists specifically as an art movement. Um, and that's going to be on Wednesday the 10th. So we've now decided, okay, we're going to officially say that we open, this will be from the 10th to the 14th of July 2019. Oh, that's great news. And it means the whole event has continued to grow over the four years that you've been at the helm. But do you think even with the extended dates, you're still cramming a whole lot of stuff in? Oh, look, yeah. it's There's so much that goes on because, um, as I say, we started as an art fair, but one of the things I guess I've learned from living up here and with my colleague who's the artistic director, Janina Harding, is that culture, Indigenous culture, is not just about visual art. It's about everything. And uh, so what that's the wonderful thing is that we are able to bring to people all the music, the traditional dance, contemporary dance, you know, film, theatre, uh, music, song, everything. Um, and we've got a really special event for this year for the 10th anniversary, which we've never done before and actually hasn't been done in Queensland before, which is a it's a big coral production, um, as in choirs, not coral off the barrier reef. And so we have gone out into various communities across both the Cape and the Torres Straits, and it will be about 100 singers on stage on the Saturday night of Kayat who are going to perform. So each, so there's um, a group of Aboriginal singers from the um, sort of Kuki Yalanji, Kuki Yimata communities from Hopevale, Gunganji communities from Yarrabah, uh, Mossman Gorge, that area, who are all going to come together and they're going to sing in their languages. 
Then we have two islands in the Torres Straits who are going to be singing in their languages, and then all of them come together to sing some songs in, in probably English or a, a language that they choose that they will share. I think it's going to be amazing. That certainly sounds lovely, and, and I think you're right. Just looking at the events and describing the event as an Aboriginal art fair only, it does injustice to the entirety of the culture, but there are so many facets that you need to curate. How do you demarcate that? How do you cross over between the different disciplines of Aboriginal culture at this event? Well, we the, the curation that we do is really in relation to the to the art. So we curate in the art fair itself in the sense that we try and define the work that is is the best work, I guess. And we work each year, you know, during the time that we're not producing kayak, we're working closely with art centres and artists to sort of guide and direct a little bit on where they're going. So, you know, that they might be developing works in ceramics or they might be work, developing works in photography. So we do try and sort of help guide a little bit. And part of that has been that we introduced some, um, the Kaif Art Awards two years ago. So this will be the third year. And so we have an award for like excellence. We have an award for photography. We have a, this new this year is a 3D award for sculpture because we're conscious that a lot more artists are now dealing with um, and working in ceramics. And then we've got an innovation award. So that's exciting to see artists that are sort of working into other, in, in other areas like ghost nets and, and, things like that where it's an unusual sort of medium that they're working in. I guess as far as the music and the dance and things, we don't curate it in a sense other than making sure that we have equal Torres Strait Island and Aboriginal performance so that everybody gets an opportunity. It's, 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 it's both cultures and I guess that's what's unique about being up here in um, far north Queensland, you know, as a state that we do actually have these both these very strong um, Indigenous cultures. So calling this event an art fair, do you think that falls short these days? Is there any talk of renaming the event to better describe what actually happens? Tony, we have talked about it, but I think we're going to keep it because everyone ends up knowing, I mean, everyone calls it kayaks anyway. So whether it's, you know, the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair or the Cairns Indigenous Art Festival, it's known fondly as kayaks. And so maybe it doesn't matter because people know that it, you know, it is just more now than the visual art. Vanessa, there's always plenty of artistic temperament, if I can put it that way, to deal with this when you're putting any sort of creative purpose together, whether it's an event or an exhibition or a celebration of culture. But in a practical sense, have there been times for you under your watch where the politics, for want of a better description, has become strained? Have you had to tread lightly at some point? Oh, look, and I don't know that it it ever gets like that. We just have great relationships with the art centres and the artists and the councils. There's never ever been sort of an issue or anything. It's it's. I, I talk about it as a sort of such an, a joyful opportunity to work in this field where you have a group of. So if you're working with artists and and performers, so it's sort of the happy side of of things. You know, that's the. The positive. That's what we're all about. So I've never sort of felt a sense of any of that politics or any of the, you know, having to deal with with any of that sort of negativity. It's terrific to hear that, Vanessa. And moving on, have you generally seen a change in the overall local attitude to Aboriginal culture in Cairns, perhaps due to the event, the recognition that's received due to this fair? Yeah. Look, I do feel that there has been a change. Um, I guess I. 
approached CIAF as a, a way of educating people. So prior to my job here at CIAF, I actually ran the or managed the Yarrabah Art Centre, which is just outside of Cairns, and it's like the biggest Indigenous group in Australia. It's the biggest Indigenous community. So um, I worked over there for three years and ran that art centre. So I had that sort of understanding of what it's like to work with the artists and producing the art and, you know, coming to Kayaf and and people's expectations of what Indigenous art was in Queensland. So we'd have a lot of people who would turn up and say, oh, well, you know, where are all the dot paintings and that kind of thing because they're thinking of, um, you know, the desert um, and they're thinking of Northern Territory, Western Australian kind of art. And Queensland art is really different. So I always sort of then, when when I started four years ago at Kai, felt that, you know, Kai is an important platform both for the artists but also for visitors to understand that Indigenous art from different regions varies hugely. Um, and you look at the Torres Strait Islanders, well, their, their main skill, you know, and it's incredible work that they do is in lino print. Now, I've, I've never seen anyone else in Australia sort of do the kind of lino print work that they do. So I think Kaif has become a really important platform for that education and you then see the uptake from people. We have a group of collectors and curators who come every year. The kind of work that gets bought and, and collected in all the main institutions is absolutely fantastic. You get all the ghost nets and all sorts of stuff. It's also gone on to have big international exposure exhibitions all over the world now. And all of that's actually come out of that exposure at Kaya. The choral presentation that you mentioned, obviously a must-see, but mm. is there still something in the art or the culture or a performance that you'd love to bring to the event but has still eluded you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, it's sculpture. So I'm, I'm a Sydney girl originally, so sculpture by the sea has always been something that I wanted to create here and we were going to call it Sculpture on the Inlet. We did actually apply for funding for this year and didn't get it, so um, that is still eluding me, but we'll get there one day. Um, You know, yeah, still to come. I think that would be great to see. Now, before we wrap up, just give us the details again for anyone wanting to come along to the event. Sure. So it's um, kiaf.com.au is our website. We officially launch our program on uh, Thursday, the 2nd of May, and the three-ticketed events, so that's our opening night, the fashion and the big coral production, which is called Cultural Heights, they go on sale on the 3rd of May. But the rest of it is free, and I guess that's the amazing gift about Kayak is that most of it is a free event. And for those people that are listening, do come and come and immerse yourself and, and just learn and share because it's a really extraordinary experience. Vanessa, thanks so much for speaking with us on Inside the Gallery. Thank you so much. Bye. And as Vanessa said, if you want to check out those dates or head up to Cairns for the Indigenous Art Fair, it is a great event. Take a look online at kiaf.com.au. That's C-I-A-F.com.au. Okay, so there's no need to spin the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab prize wheel this time as there's only one final subject to cover. And that one is one of entrepreneurship in art. It is a tough subject to navigate as sometimes being creative and making a buck out of it can be viewed as being a sellout, I guess. But nobody wants to be a starving artist. And if you can create an income out of your creative expression, then so be it. And recently, while following a number of artists on Instagram, I was taken by the work of John Klein. 
and the prolific and extensive nature not only of his art but also of his extended reach, his various facets, and the way he brings his images to the market, actually. So worthwhile having a chat, I thought. And John, thanks so much for joining us on Inside the Gallery. Thank you very much for having me. The past 12 months for you as an artist just seem to have exploded. Give us a bit of an idea of what's been happening. I've been doing a lot of things, actually. I've been doing a lot of group shows at different galleries um, across Sydney, and I've been entering a lot of art prizes. And I've also moved into a slightly new direction in that I'm now um, creating repeat patterns and I'm licensing my work. So that's something completely new and different from me. So I'm kind of, I've actually got a business coach who's helping me with that side of things um, because it is really quite new. So I'm, I'm trying to get my head around how, how to make that business model work, I suppose. I mean, most artists are not very business savvy, but I like to um, have both sides working, both the creative and the business side, because if you want to try and survive, you obviously need to make money, right? So um, that's kind of important. So, yeah, so that that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, in terms of group shows, uh, I do exhibit quite a bit with a gallery in Northbridge called Gallery 307, which is which is a great little gallery there. Um, I've also exhibited uh, at the Milk Factory in Barrel, which is also a lovely, lovely gallery down there. And right now I'm exhibiting at KAB Gallery in Terrigal, and I'm also exhibiting in Gallery 307. So it's all happening. It certainly is, but previously you have been a finalist and a winner in a few competitions. Yeah, I've been in quite a few prizes over the years. I've been in the Mossman Art Prize a couple of times. You know, I've been in you know Hunters Hill Art Prize, Langover Art Prize, and so on. Uh, also, uh, last year I was in the Kennedy Prize in Adelaide, which is is kind of almost equivalent to their Archibald Prize. It's kind of their most prestigious prize in Adelaide. I also was a, a semi-finalist in the Doug Moran National Portrait Prize, which is actually the most, which is the richest prize out of all the prizes in Australia. I think it's up to $150,000 now. So that's a really tough one to even reach that sort of finalist stage. So that, that's been pretty good. And the Archibald, I have not cracked yet. <laughs> I have actually entered it five times. This is the fifth time um, that I've entered. And this year, I have painted Nancy Hayes, who is uh, a musical theatre legend, really, in this country. She's been working since the 1960s. So that was an amazing experience for me. Um, I've always admired her as a performer. And it was great to have that opportunity to paint her and she was pretty happy with the painting, so that means I'm happy. <laughs> if, if your subject's happy as an artist, you're happy. John, there seems to be a certain level of ambition there, and I'm wondering if that has intensified over the past few years. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I have painted all of my life. However, I, haven't, I didn't actually start to show my work until 2012. So, you know, it's quite late in life, actually. And the last couple of years, absolutely, it has ramped up big time. It's become quite a passion for me and, and pretty all-consuming. I mean, my, my father actually was an artist and he studied at East Sydney Tech, which is now the National Arts School, in the 1930s. And he, I guess he instilled in me a love of art. And my son's actually just completed 
a Bachelor of Fine Arts um, Honours actually at Sydney College of the Arts. So he's also very creative. So, but, um, you know, so I guess it's in the genes and in the family. Now, in terms of your maturity, and you mentioned that it mm-hmm. wasn't until you were older that you began showing your art. Yes. Do you think that's assisted you in terms of your greater success and your greater relevancy recently in the market? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, you know, in previous roles, I've worked in marketing and I've worked in the arts. At, I worked at NIDA for five years, for example, um, looking after the marketing of NIDA and the Opera House and various other, uh, you know, arts institutions. So having the, I guess, the sort of the marketing skills and the arts administration skills certainly have helped me to market myself as an artist. Would you have done as well as you feel you've done without your business coach? Um, I think having a business coach for me and specifically for art has been very important because, you know, he's encouraged me to explore other ways to, I guess, not to say it as a dirty word, but to monetize the art. And by that, I mean licensing of images and then using elements from paintings to create repeat patterns and then obviously when you when you do a painting and you sell it it goes so you know you've made your money on that one sale but if that image is then able to be licensed for other purposes then obviously you can continue to drive you know drive an income from it so that's kind of really important I think for from you know sustainability um, in terms of being an artist and actually trying to pay bills and and so on, so yeah that's that's it. So that's um kind of you know that area has been growing for me. I mean I've I've um collaborating at the moment with uh, Biopack who um have created an art series of um compostable takeaway cups, which is pretty great. So there's a really lovely environmental message there. So they combine. Uh, which has a bit of environmental theme onto a um, compostable takeaway cup. So, so that was a really nice project that I've been working on, and and um, my artwork will be seen on that later this year. Um, I'm also working with another company called The Artist Label, who um, work with artists to create um, scarves, um, and they 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 work with artists all around the world and create this amazing collection of scarves, which they. They change seasonally. So that's another project I'm working on. So there's lots of little projects like that going on in the background. Um, I guess the other thing that's coming up for me later on this year, I'm doing an exhibition at Arrow Gallery, which is in East Sydney, just behind the uh, Sydney Museum, Australian Museum, actually. And I'm doing, it's called Culture um, Crash, and it's an exhibition with two other artists, Gabby Malpass and Melissa Reed Devine. And the whole theme is around the merging of East and West. And in my work, I'm looking at that um, through contemporary still life. The other artists are, are looking at a similar themes, but um, in their own style and looking at their own uh, different subject matters. So I think, I mean, I went to China last year and I found a lot of inspiration from the art and particularly the ceramics and things that I saw there. So in this this exhibition, which is on in um, October, November, there'll be a lot of um, Chinese ceramics will be coming through and I'm kind of blending those with Australian flowers and also uh, Australian birds. And, yeah, so it's interesting combination of things. Yes, and it seems you have pulled a few of your disciplines together and you have so much coming up but what is your nirvana what's your golden goal what would that be um 
Look, I suppose, you know, the Archibald's the big one. That's the one that gives you the kudos. That's the one that helps elevate you um, in the eyes of the general public and also the art community. You know, obviously, I'd love to be hung in that exhibition. So I guess that's something that I'm that I'm striving for. But, you know, it's a bit of a lottery. They, they get about 900 entries roughly every year and they hang maybe 40, maybe 50 at tops. So the, the odds are not great. However, hopefully one day I'll, I'll get hung in that show. So I suppose that's a, that would be something that I'm definitely striving for. But I think just to continue to work and to have people appreciate what you do and actually buy your your work you know actually appreciate it enough to to part with their money to to purchase a work i think that's been extremely gratifying because you know as an artist and if you're in your studio working um it's quite a solitary occupation actually so the only time you, you're showing your work is when you do an exhibition or i suppose and interacting with people who've come to the exhibition if you're getting great feedback and if people actually purchase the work well that that's extremely gratifying so i guess that's something that's important you know to every artist well john it's been great to hear about how you approach your art and thanks for your time and i certainly hope with so much coming up yep. that you get enough sleep <laughs> it's a bit like that i actually like painting at night too so yeah more sleep would be good. But yeah, no, it's great to chat with you today and, and thanks very much for having me on your program and good luck with it all. And if you want to take a look at the loads of John's work, head to johnkline.com.au. That's Klein spelled K-L-E-I-N. That's johnkline.com.au. And just before we finish up what's going on around the country, The National is on show at the moment in Sydney across three venues, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and Carriage Works until June 23. Still some time to see it, but it is popular, so don't leave it till the last week. The Enchanted Forest, Nature and Devotion in Indian Art, that's on at the Art Gallery of South Australia until the 21st of July. The 2019 Tom Malone Prize is on show at the Art Gallery of Western Australia in Perth until the 13th of May. And at the Art Gallery of Queensland, a fleeting bloom, Japanese art from their collection. It runs until the 29th of September. Check the gallery's websites for details. We could actually fill an entire podcast listing what's going on in Australia at the moment. But instead, if you are travelling, there's always something most compelling underway at galleries around the country. So make sure you check online while travelling to uncover a few surprises away from the regular tourist haunts. That is the podcast for now. Thanks for downloading. Be sure to subscribe and share so you never miss an episode. And we'll always keep updating inside the gallery's Facebook and Instagram pages with exhibitions and other stuff we love. I'm Tim Stackpole. Thanks to the folks at Pixel Perfect Pro Lab for sponsoring the podcast and reminding you that when you're in the gallery, remove your backpack, okay? Bye-bye for now. <laughs>